I'm Sayun Thorsen's daughter, and I play the cello, and I'm originally from Iceland. Excellent. I'm so happy that you are on <laughs> and that you're sharing your stories and your experiences with us today. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad we could make this work. Yeah. So what got you started in music in the first place? Well, it's funny because um, I don't even remember getting started in music. My mom was a violinist, um, is a violinist, and um, she tells me stories about, you know, she'd be practicing and even as like a tiny baby, I would be like squealing <laughs> as I was, as she was practicing. So, um, you know, she says that I just wanted to, to make music from the beginning, but um, as I got older, about four or five, um, I got to be pretty anxious about it. And so she enrolled me in some, you know, sort of kindergarten type things like, um, you know, the recorders and the ORF instruments and everything. And um, I got really excited about that. And then um, she didn't actually want me to be a violinist like her because she didn't want that. Um, she didn't want to have that as like part of our mother-daughter relationship. And so she asked her friend who was a cello teacher if he could teach me. So um, I started in Iceland and when I was five and um, yeah, he taught me how to sit still for 10 seconds and things like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, were you involved in school programs at all, like an orchestra program or that sort of thing? Or was it mainly like, you know, taking lessons and that sort of thing? Um, at that point, it was outside of school. Mm -hmm. um, we moved to the States when I was seven. Okay. And um, at that point, I think we had a music class at school, but cello was um, separate. So I moved, the, we moved to Iowa City. Um, my dad was um, doing his residency at the University of Iowa. And I don't know if you guys know Iowa City, but there's a wonderful school for strings called the Purcell School of Music in Iowa City. And we were so lucky um, that I got to kind of grow up there and take lessons there. And um, it's a wonderful, wonderful school. Um, and so I remember my first lessons there I didn't know any English and so my teacher Patty T. Meyer would like you know demonstrate and I would like mimic and we would sort of play back and forth and you know we would do these talking cello things where we would talk to each other like through our cellos and um, I just remember those being you know really some of the most joyful parts of moving to the states was you know I didn't, I, I didn't know anybody. I couldn't connect through the language, but I could connect through music with people. So um, that was a huge sort of um, memory for me that, that still is very much with me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That you brought up that good point about the language barrier sort of thing. And, and normally mm -hmm. as teachers, um, music teachers, I myself am one as well. Um, yeah. We don't really think about those language barriers until they happen to us. <laughs> and we yeah. have a student that comes in that doesn't speak English at all. And like, yes. how do you figure out, you know, how to communicate with the student? I mean, the good thing is, is that, you know, we can, you know, communicate in a way through our instruments, but it does pose an extra challenge and also an extra cultural barrier um, between true. teacher and student. So what were some of, you know, the benefits of having those interactions with your teachers, but also some of the challenges as well, you know, being a person that, you know, English is not your first language. Yeah. I mean, I remember um, definitely some challenges, um, you know, at school 
just trying to, you know, catch up with um, spelling and just trying to learn English. But then, you know, we would have these spelling tests. And I remember I got in trouble because I was like trying to look at my um, neighbor's paper because I had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) But, you know, there are those kinds of things. And then I remember my ESL teacher was teaching us these, um, you know, like hand clapping games. Mm-hmm. And my mom got really upset because she was like, you know, I'm, I thought ESL, you were supposed to be teaching my daughter English, not like silly games. And the teacher was like, well, this is how she's going to actually start to make friends. And then her friends are going to teach her English. Yeah. And I just thought I, that also stuck with me. Like what an incredible teaching tool of like really just teaching us what the other kids are doing so that we have some way in and then the language will come, you know, because mm-hmm. I was definitely also learning, you know, vocabulary and, le- you know, like that kind of stuff. But um, that was kind of eye opening. I remember and my mom was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. um, but definitely, I mean, some really wonderful things. Like I said, I, I had a community of other um, kids who played music. And so it, it was sort of I didn't realize it then, but. I look back on it now and I see how fortunate I was to have that kind of be normal. Like Mm -hmm. it's normal to go home after school and practice and it's normal to like come to your lesson, but then also come to music theory class and then also come to like group class and then also come to orchestra and then, you know, like do all of this music stuff Mm -hmm. um, because there were so many other kids doing it. Um, And so I, I think that was a big part of, um, me sticking with music for, for my life. Yeah, that's awesome. And what made you want to pursue music professionally? Cause I know you went to Juilliard, um, after mm-hmm. you got out of, you know, your normal primary secondary education. So what kind of motivated you to be a professional musician? Well, I think, um, so there are a couple of things I, there was a moment where I think I wanted to be like, I don't remember, a, a doctor or something, you know, cause my dad, the doctor, and it was, there was like a take your daughter to work day. And I wanted, I, for some reason, I really wanted to be an eye doctor or something. And so he kind of pawned me off on one of his colleagues and, <laughs> and had me sit in on one of his um, patients and they were like draining a cyst and I like lost it. I like <laughs> had to like go puke and, you know, stuff. And so I was like, okay, this is not for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But around that same time, I also heard a wonderful, wonderful cellist um, play the Dvorak concerto. Her name was Zara Nelsova, um, a huge uh, superstar kind of cellist um, and soloist. And I just, I just remember being so floored. Not only was she so regal and so uh, commanding and compelling as a performer, but her sound just really touched me. And I just thought like, wow, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able Mm -hmm. to touch people in that way. And um, I think, I think that was, that was a big moment where I just thought, okay, that's, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. And I never really questioned it. And so um, you know, maybe there were some times where I, I wasn't as interested, but I think in the back of my mind, I always knew this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. 
That's awesome. And what were your experiences like as a student at Juilliard? Yeah. So I actually went to the Cleveland Institute of Music first and then did my master's at Juilliard. And um, I have to say the experience I had in Cleveland, which was a little bit smaller, a little bit more, um, I would say of a community feeling, Mm -hmm. um, very supportive, a lot of chamber music. um, And Juilliard was a little bit more, um, I would say competitive, especially in the cello studio. There were just a lot of high power cellists and there was a lot of, um, I would say healthy competition though. Like we were really trying to, to be our best and really, you know, um, support each other, but I think in a different way than I was used to. And, and that was kind of a wake up call. I mean, even New York, um, just, it was kind of a reality check, you know, of, you know, there are lots of amazing people out there. Um, and I'm just one of them, you know, and Mm -hmm. I have to figure out how to make this work because rent is expensive and, you know, and this takes a lot of my energy. And so it was just kind of one of those things where I was like, okay, um, if I'm going to do this, I really need to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And you did figure it out, (laughs) which is good to hear. Um, You do so many things. I want to talk about a little bit about your, your professional life as well, because you are a cello soloist um, who's played with multiple orchestras. Um, You can read her extensive bio of all the wonderful things that she does as a performer, Um, but she's played with the BBC Symphony, LA Phil, Toronto, Seattle, and Iceland Symphony Orchestras. Um, You also teach at the University of Washington in Seattle, Mm -hmm. and you do a lot of um, solo work as well um, with recording. So can you talk a little bit about um, your current professional life and a little bit about that balance between, you know, being a professional cellist and touring and that sort of thing, as well as being a teacher. Yeah. So I actually never thought I would be a teacher. Like that's not something that I, um, really thought I would do. And then this opportunity came up and what I loved about it um, here at the University of Washington is that it, it is a research university. Mm-hmm. And so um, technically sort of the guideline that they give us is that 40% of our job is research. And I can come back to that a little bit. 30% is teaching and 30% is service to the university and the community. And so what I love about that is that in, you know, if you're a scientist, obviously your research is in a lab and you're doing stuff, you know, like figuring out the next, you know, greatest breakthrough in science. And um, in the arts, and especially in music, it is performing, commissioning, um, re- you know, recording, um, and, and doing all the things that I love to do. And so there was a sort of coming together of a lot of different things that I loved about it. And so I never thought I would love it as much as I do, but I, I do. Um, and then of course the teaching part is really amazing to see the growth over two or four years of somebody really growing and owning their music and their, um, musicianship and technique. It's just, it's so cool. And, um, so sorry, your, your question was about (laughs) how the highway balanced that. And yeah. It is sort of a balancing act. I think um, I have definitely experienced burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, I have definitely experienced um, 
thinking to myself, but I'm so lucky I'm doing, you know, I'm living the dream. I'm doing what I, you know, set out to do. This is amazing. But then having, you know, serious, um, just anxiety and, you know, just depression and, and things like that. And, um, it's been a really hard thing to do to try to figure out how, what I, what I actually need to play at my best, mm. you know, that means I can't just bounce back from a international flight and teach the next day. Like I need one day to take care of myself, do my laundry, you know, make, you know, some food, good food for myself and, you know, really take care of myself before I can really be my best self for my students, you know, and for myself. And so there are things like that, that I've just had to um, kind of learn and, and kind of through trial and error, basically, um, that I have to really see that I'm no good to anybody if I'm a mess. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. That's so important. Mm -hmm. For sure. And so you were talking a little bit about this, this issue of burnout as well. And it's, it's a hot topic that we talk about on this podcast too, is like keeping up not only your physical health, which everybody always thinks of first when they're a musician, Mm -hmm. but your mental and emotional health as well. Um, and how much capacity you have in that, especially when a lot of musicians are spread very thin. We're always taking on different projects, you know, we're performers and we're teachers and maybe we're dabbling in composition and arranging and recording and all these things. And it's so easy uh, to burn ourselves out in that way. So I'm, I'm glad that you had mentioned that because sometimes I feel like there's um, kind of this like weird I don't even know how to describe it there's like this kind of people aren't really coming out and admitting the fact that they are have burnout and that they Mm -hmm. are you know feeling that way because it's kind of seen as I don't know like you can't handle what you're doing or that like you're weak or whatever and and you're like well this isn't this everything that you've always wanted like why can't you handle all of this stuff and I think the more people that are professionals in our field that could come out and be like yes I've struggled with this or yes I've struggled with my mental or emotional health um really normalizes it because I feel like you know, even a lot of college students are experiencing burnout with all the stuff that's expected of them in the time that they're in college and they don't even want to admit it at that point. So then when we get in the professional field, nobody really wants to talk about it. It's kind of a taboo (laughs) sort of situation for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I've definitely felt that kind of, um, pressure to sort of suck it up you know, and just keep going. And the thing is, it's just, yeah, you might be able to do that for a little bit of time, but in the end, you're going to suffer, your music's going to suffer, you know, and everything, you know, your career is going to suffer. And what's interesting is, you know, I've been doing a lot of just um, thinking over the pandemic about like, you know, a lot of vision work, a lot of sort of what do I want to do, you know, going forward. And some of the things that have come up for me are a lot of limiting beliefs that Mm -hmm. I didn't even know I had, you know, but things that maybe weren't said to me directly, but sort of have somehow seeped into my brain. Um, You know, one that um, I've heard a lot of people talk about, especially I think in Europe is like, if you don't have an orchestra job before 30, you might as well just do something else because nobody's going to hire you. 
right? Like they're not even going to take your resume anymore, Mm -hmm. which is complete, you know, BS. That is not true at all. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get my job, you know, until after 30. Um, you know, another one that I think a lot of, and and that causes a lot of anxiety, right? Like, like, oh, I can't hack it. Well, no, it's not about that because you have literally no control over other people's decision-making, right? Like that is so not under your control. And so you trying to control something that you can't control is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and another one is, um, you know, especially as a woman, you know, that all the soloists or all the, the performers, you know, there's such a, an obsession with youth, right. This like, um, Cinderella thing on stage. Right. And, um, I was actually told once that nobody would want to see me on stage after 40 and that I shouldn't wear sleeveless, um, dresses because it's not flattering. Like my arms aren't flattering and like those kind of things. And, you know, I know at the time I knew like my brain was going, that's not true. And obviously like, that's, you know, your opinion or whatever, but at the same time, that is also like seeped into my unconscious somehow. And, And that's something that I've been really working on, um, looking at and saying, okay, is this something that is actually helping me? Or is this something that is a part of an old system that doesn't even exist anymore and is holding me back because I have, you know, somehow decided that I'm going to believe this. And it's just, it's those kind of things that I think everybody has to go through and everybody has their things. Um, you know, I, I just, I think it's so important that we take care. It's like house cleaning, right? Like you just <laughs> got to clean your house. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In a while. That's so true. And yeah, prioritizing those things and checking with yourself too. Like you were talking about the, the concert attire and what to mm-hmm. wear and, and thinking about, okay, is this something that I legitimately think, or is this something that society wants me to think? Yeah. Um, yeah. Checking with yourself mentally and seeing like where those biases are creeping up in the back of your brain. I, I completely agree with that in so many ways, um, especially as a woman as well, like you brought up, that's so true. Um, and yeah, so valid as well. It's, it's something that I think all of us go through that we're only starting to have conversations about. It's not really a hot topic conversation yet, but uh, I think it's getting there for sure. And I think when we, you know, continue to have these conversations and, and normalize that we're all mm-hmm. going through this, um, then hopefully things will get better as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I feel that, I mean, I see, I look at my colleagues and they're being, you know, super awesome on stage, wearing what they're comfortable wearing and looking amazing and, mm-hmm. you know, owning their stage, you know, and really, um, doing awesome with that. So I really think we are turning, we're at a turning point there. That's really exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. And you had, I I was checking out your bio and your website and everything and something in your bio um, stood out to me and it was the cello sound alchemy creator. That's who you are. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that is? Yes. So um, when I started teaching and I started to, um, sort of give a lot of trial lessons, right? Cause, mm-hmm. and, I, and if you are um, looking at going to um, music school for college, I, 
just want to put that out there that you should absolutely contact anybody that you're interested in studying with and have a trial lesson with them because this is um, just a really great way to see if it's a good fit or not. Oh yeah. And what I realized as I you know started doing these is I was saying a lot of the same things over and over and over again. Um, and I just thought, wow, you know, I wish I could just, I don't know, like make a recording of myself doing this and like blast it out there <laughs> so people could, you know, get this information because it's just literally information that they need. It's not that they need me to teach them. They just need this information of like how to make a healthy sound, like how to um, really get that communication through their instrument and like through their body. Right. Mm -hmm. And so during the pandemic, um, I just, you know, every, all my concerts were canceled and all that stuff. And so I just had this time where I just thought, okay, now I can do something about this. This has been in the back of my mind. And I just, I want to see what I can do. And I realized that probably the easiest way to do that would be through an online course. And so I made um, an online course for cellists, uh, very specific to work on their sound. And, um, and so that was, um, a totally new thing. And I think, especially for me, figuring out how I could separate the coaching part of a lesson and the knowledge part, like the skills transfer, right. Part and how I could get that to people, and give them the tools of like how to use the course also, because it's a new thing, right? Like we're so used to one-on-one -on -one lessons or, or um, group, you know, like maybe you're in orchestra or a band or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it was a real challenge for me, but it was really, really satisfying. And um, I've been doing a lot more online teaching, obviously, but this <laughs> has been a great way that I felt like I could have a little bit more impact and reach maybe more people than I can doing one-on-one -on -one, um, lessons. And so, yeah, it's been definitely a learning curve, but it's been fun. That's awesome. And, and such a great idea as well. I was just wondering what that was. I was like, huh, I wonder, I'm curious, but it's <laughs> awesome. Um, and not only, you know, you, you play with all these orchestras, you teach, you have, you know, the online work as well, but you also recently released an album. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your album and what the recording process is like, you know, being a recording musician as well and a soloist? Yeah. So my latest album, um, is vernacular. And then I actually just recorded the box suites as well. So there's, but that's not out yet. So I'll talk about <laughs> <laughs> what the process was like for recording for Bach. And, um, I'll talk a little bit about vernacular too. Um, it's so different than recording. And I have to say, I, um, one of the ways that I, I feel, I didn't, so my first recording I made when I was just out of school um, of the Britain cello suites. Um, and my idea was that I wanted to capture performance on like, kind of like a live performance on CD. So I would do a whole suite at a time. I recorded like 20 minutes, you know, in one take. And then I would like do it again and like pick the best one, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. which is more like performing. But what I didn't realize is that recording is not like performing at all. And what the 
great thing about recording is that you can actually get the best of, of, you know, like every movement or every phrase or um, even every note and, and really make something really more than you can in a um, live performance. Um, you know, there's something very, really great about a live performance. I'm not taking anything away from that. The recording is just different and it's a different set of skills. And it's a, it's a whole nother energy that you have to give. Um, you know, when you have to play something three, four, five times, you know, one after the other, you can't have the same kind of burning energy that you might have in a live performance. You just, mm-hmm. you just can't, you know, you, you have to kind of pace out your energy and, and do it differently. And so that was, um, you know, a really big realization for me as I was learning how to, how to get the, my, the best out of myself in these recordings. So um, Vernacular was my second CD that came out, I think in 2019. And it's all Icelandic music, um, most of it written for me. And that was really a passion project because I just wanted to um, get, get that music out there into the world and let everybody hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was playing it a little bit in, you know, recitals and things like that, but um, this was a way I felt like I, I could champion it and really, you know, get more people to hear it. And the box suites really was, um, it's something that I started before the pandemic and I was doing lecture recitals on each suite um, at the University of Washington leading up to, you know, the 1920 season. And I was going to play all of them in May, 2020. And then all the, obviously uh, didn't get to do that. And I just felt like I needed to have some sort of closure with it. You know, I wanted to have um, something to show for it, you know, for all the, you know, this is something that I, the box suites are something cellists learn from when they're like, I don't know, in the Suzuki book three or something, you know, mm-hmm. and I've been basically playing them for all of my life. And I just, there's something that I felt like I was at a, at a point where I wanted to capture it. And I really wanted to say something different um, with them. And so it was really a personal kind of um, coming back to home, coming back to, to my roots a little bit, you know, different from the Icelandic stuff, because that's a different kind of root, but this is like my cello root, you know? Yeah, so, Absolutely. That's awesome. And I love how both of those projects are, you know, one is, is very much new music, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's Icelandic music, but it's very much new music that's written for you. And then there's the super traditional stereotypical (laughs) music, right? And I I think that's so awesome that those are, you know, very polarized ideas. I feel like in our, in our music world, um, because, you know, we always talk about how, we're always continuously performing music from the same time periods over and over again and, and the need to promote and advocate for new music as well. And I, I just love how you have both feet in both of those worlds as well. You are, you're taking traditional music, but you're putting your own spin on it. Like you said, you're, you're developing your own interpretation, right? And then you're also developing new music as well. And I think that's awesome that you're tackling both of those things. And I think a lot of people are afraid to, they're afraid to, <laughs> they're afraid to tackle, you know, both at the same time or both in their career. I feel like some people are very much like they perform the traditional repertoire mm-hmm. 
or they perform 100% new music. And I yeah. think that's awesome that you're you're reaching out and trying to touch both of those those um, facets. Yeah, I, I think there's something, I mean, I definitely was told, you know, oh yeah, you should just be a new music cellist or whatever. Yeah. And I just, I think that's so limiting. I mean, mm-hmm. each person is so much more than just some little marketing niche, right? Like, I think we're so much more. And um, I don't know, I think the dance of it is trying to, make peace with that and find the balance, like kind of, I mean, back to what we're talking about with burnout, it's like finding the, and I hate that word balance. I really do. I think it's more like equilibrium, you know, in that, like, if I am really, you know, focused on new music right now, I actually need the Bach to sort of bring me back to equilibrium. Same thing, like if I'm working really hard and I'm spending a lot of time, I actually need more um, you know, self-care and like, you know, really taking care of my emotional health. Um, I don't need like to balance them. I need like both of them to be equally as strong. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think you brought up the good point when you were circling it back to the idea of burnout as well. Um, finding that equilibrium. I do like that word better than balance as well. That's, that's, (laughs) that is a better way of, of putting it for sure. Um, but you know, it, it is a good thing that you are performing some new music and putting mm-hmm. that out there as well. Um, you know, being who you are and the career that you have, you know, being playing with multiple orchestras and things like that, and also being a professor at a university, I think it's awesome that you are promoting new music as well. I think more folks need to do that um, in order to, you know, keep classical music alive and going and, and really promote those things. So do you have any sort of um, advice or tips for people that, you know, are either composing new music or wanting to perform new music? Like, what is your advice about, you know, tackling a new music project? Um, wow. I, you know, what is coming to my mind right now is actually embracing improvisation. I know that sounds like it doesn't have anything to do with new music or composing new music or playing new music. But I think there's a point at which we can get so fixated on um, playing the ink. You know, you look at the page and you're supposed to play everything. And sometimes it's so over notated, you can't even actually physically play it, right? Mm -hmm. Like no one can. Um, And I think that's when, like we were talking about equilibrium is like, if you're going super far in that direction, see if you can also give yourself, even if it's just like one minute of just playing the sounds that you want to make or, you know, play a beautiful phrase or, you know, whatever you're feeling, try to put that into music and get closer to that creative process rather than just being a, um, interpreter of somebody else's music, like tap into that, your own voice and see Mm. where that takes you. Cause I, I feel so many times, um, people get so fixated on what's on the page, but it's totally what is not on the page. That is what everybody's after. Right. And they're trying to put that into the page, but that's never, no, you know, no notation is ever going to be perfect. And so, um, just 
I think that would be my advice is, is if you don't have an improvisation practice of your own, um, just try like one minute. I call it sound doodle, just like doodle, <laughs> just like do whatever, you know, nobody cares. It's not like you're going to record it and put it out, you know, like yeah. it's just for you and, and just get into that creative thing. And then I think for me, at least it really opened up this whole other, um, perspective and, just joy and bringing music to life. Yeah, it's awesome. And I love the idea of the sound doodle. That's so great. I'm going to use that with my, my, my little kids now. I'm going to be yes. like, okay, we're going to do a sound doodle. Oh, yes. I love that. That's awesome. I love that term. That's so great. And uh, I guess my last question for you is, um, you talked a little bit about, you know, your box show suite project, but do you have any sort of upcoming projects, you know, whether it's recording or what have you in your career um, that you have coming down the pike? Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of um, awesome things. I'm premiering a new concerto with the Winnipeg Symphony in January. Cross your fingers. Hopefully it's going to happen. Yay. It's delayed. Oh no. <laughs> um, yes. Right. Hoping for you. Give me my fingers crossed for you. Yes. All the things. Thank you. Um, it's a concerto by Veronique Vaca, who's a Canadian Icelandic composer, and she was inspired by melting glaciers in Iceland. And so she actually, not just like abstractly, she actually took measurements of um, glaciers from the past, you know, decades mm-hmm. and really seeing how they're, they've been shrinking and what they're leaving behind, actually. And that's part of, and she's put that into the structure of the piece, which I think is super cool and um, really amazing. And she's a cellist as well. And so she really um, wrote really creatively for the cello and I'm super excited about that. So that's kind of the next thing, big thing coming up, but then um, lots of other improvisation things also. I've been working a lot on that and so um and working with some electronics too and that's been kind of um taking over a lot of my bandwidth right now and so I'm hoping to do something with that so not quite sure yet what that is but I'll keep you posted that's (laughs) awesome That's so great. I want to thank you so much um, for being on the show and for talking about your experiences and all of your projects and recording and sound doodles and all that great (laughs) stuff. It was a pleasure having you on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a joy.